Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector. Hello, I am privileged today to be joined by Professor Megan Davis. Megan Davis is the Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous and Professor of Law at the University of New South Wales. She is also currently the Acting Commissioner of the New South Wales Land and Environment Court, Balnaves Chair of Constitutional Law, a member of the United Nations Human Rights Council's Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, a Commissioner on the Australian Rugby League Commission, among many other roles. Welcome, Megan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Megan, at SVA, we believe in a future of Australia where all people and communities thrive, and that includes a really strong belief in the need for a reconciled Australia. Really interested, given the pivotal role that you played in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, to hear from you and to learn from you. And for some of our audience members who aren't very familiar, the Uluru Statement from the Heart was issued to the Australian people in 2017, in May in 2017, and it's an invitation. It's an invitation from First Nations people to walk together, walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. And the Uluru Statement from the Heart is calling for a First Nations voice to Parliament and a Makarrata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making and truth telling. And so the, the reforms that the Uluru Statement from the Heart talks to are voice, treaty, truth. And you are a really important person among 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander delegates at the First Nations National Constitutional Convention back in 2017, um, the people who were brought together to reach a consensus on the most meaningful and appropriate way to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within the Constitution. Megan, you've been deeply involved in the development of the Uluru State of the Heart. Where, where are we at now? And as a constitutional law expert, what do you hope that the statement is going to achieve from here? Yeah, thanks, Susie. Um, so where we are at now is pretty much three years post the Uluru Statement being issued, um, and and of course it's a it's a complex it's a complex um, framework of of reform, commencing with the constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament. What we have currently is a process led by the minister to design what a voice might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and they intend to have a consultation period over December, January and February with the Australian community. Not the most ideal time, though, I would say, if you're um, serious about consulting the Australian community on something so serious. Um, And then they'll be reporting back to Cabinet on what came up in those consultations. Um, And then so after that, um, the Prime Minister has said he'll look to the legal form of the voice, Um, and that is to say they need to make a decision. I mean, the the voice to Parliament will always be in legislation. What we're asking for is for there to be a provision 
inserted into the Australian Constitution that creates the power to set up a voice to Parliament. Um, we think that's important for many reasons. One being if the government was to legislate for this voice before there's a referendum, then there will be no referendum on um, a voice to Parliament. And, um, and that will be disappointing to all of those people that participated in the process over the past five years because they were asked the question by government, what is meaningful recognition to you? And the answer was a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament. So they wanted the security of enshrinement in the Australian Constitution so that it creates durability and sustainability and certainty for our people so that we're not subject to the whims of the department or the agency as it's called or um, the kind of sometimes Florentine patronage of the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, um, but rather Aboriginal Affairs is elevated out of the realm of politics and party ideology so that that voice endures for all time um, and not just from one party to the next, which is the greatest fear of just a solely legislated voice, is that um, the risk is, as has happened in the past, it will be repealed from one government to the next. So that's where we are, is that we are going to embark on that process, which opens up the design also to non-Indigenous Australians, um, which will create an interesting dynamic. Um, but um, in the meantime, for the past three years, um, me and Aunty Pat Anderson um, and others have been uh, maintaining the Uluru leadership. Um, that is to say a large group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders and a very large group of young people who have been meeting really weekly, Friday nights for the past three years um, <laughs> on, um, on pushing the reform forward. Uh, we, we do this um, supported by the Indigenous Law Centre at the University of New South Wales. One of the first things we did do after Uluru was to set up our own little website called ulurustatement.org, and that website's still there. Um, and, um, and under that umbrella, we've been, you know, pushing forward in this what we now call the Uluru Dialogue, the dialogue between the Australian people and First Nations peoples. Megan, SVA is not an Indigenous organisation. Uh, we do work in partnership with First Nations people and First Nations organisations and communities. And along the road to wards, towards reconciliation, I'm really interested, where have you seen organisations maybe like SVA or philanthropists, like some of the people in our audience, really contribute in a positive way to the vision of a reconciled Australia? What, what role is working? And I guess what role would you like to see from organisations like us and people like philanthropists in the future? It's a good question because I've always been, as an academic, hypercritical of reconciliation, the process, mm -hmm. um, because I think it is it has been in Australia quite ritualistic 
and not one that really requires people to engage with the fundamentals of truth and justice. And I think Australia, Australia's reconciliation process in the world has famously jumped over the truth and justice elements of, of, of what reconciliation processes actually are. So the truth being the nation actually a, being able to articulate um, some of the fundamental grievances that are held by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about the dispossession and what has come since. And then the justice part is the question of repair. You know, governments go to Aboriginal peoples around the world and they say, look, this is what happened. What does repair look like to you? And that's a big part of what the Uluru Dialogues were. We asked people, and and we're not talking about black elites or or any of the black leaders that get to talk to politicians or go to Canberra. There There was no one in those rooms that had those passes that you show at Parliament House to get through. They were grassroots, low-income people. We, we, we deliberately designed it in a way that the people in the room were the people who don't have a voice. So they don't get to, to say what they think re- regularly and, and routinely. And what they said was repair was um, an enshrined voice, an entrenched voice, a voice of First Nations peoples, our traditional owners, back in communities, not in, not in the cities and not in Canberra, but communities on the ground being able to say what they think and feel about laws and policies. That's really critical. It's really fundamental work. Um, You know, with my UN hat on, when I think about the work that we do in, in development and around capabilities, it's a really fundamental principle of having those communities um, on the ground involved in, in this work. So, so Uluru in some ways is retrofitting the truth and justice element that reconciliation hasn't yet brought to the table. Now, having said that, when Uluru was handed down and when we started talking about an enshrined voice, the groups that understood the voice immediately were the RAP community, who people who did have reconciliation action plans because they had built into their structures a consultation process that required them to speak to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples when they were doing things within their business or they're not not for profit or universities, um, so that they could have so that their work can be imbued with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You know, I, I think about Andrew McKenzie, who was the former CEO of BHP. He took a whole year of consulting his traditional owner groups before BHP endorse the Uluru Statement. Now, he they had a mechanism set up and the TOs were all universal about their support for Uluru. Um, and they did a marvellous endorsement of Uluru in Perth where he invited, flew over TOs from all over the country. So RAPs in particular, RAP organisations in particular, really understand this notion of a voice. And I, and I think when we think about what networks like SVA can do to contribute to the vision of a reconciled Australia is to is to reflect really carefully on the Uluru statement and the law and the reforms embedded in in them. Too often we see people coming back and saying, "Oh well, you know, really we should do truth first, and really you should try this first, and really you should try that first. And we're trying to say to people, we want you to just be quiet and reflect upon what people are trying to say here, um, and 
and support the Uluru Statement. That that is what that is what we need. We need Australians to support and enshrine voice to Parliament in the Constitution. We need your philanthropists and your organisations to to help us provide the government with the confidence that the Australian people will support this. And that, and that's important because it's that very key element of truth and justice. What what does repair look like? Well, we spent two years putting this together. This is a, a framework of repair that is not dissimilar to the ones that have come before through the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation and the Barunga Statement and Yurikala Bark Petitions. So, so we want people to support it as a very robust framework, not to second guess us, not to tell us that we got it wrong, not to try and switch around the sequence so truth comes first and treaty comes last, but to really think that, you know, after so long, so long after the dispossession, so long after racial segregation, so long after assimilation, you know, we, 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 we've put together a really clever, I think, roadmap forward and the Uluru Statement is a is a is a olive branch it's a not that we have to give one but it is a it's a sign of peace it's an engagement in a peace process with the Australian people um and so organizations that um you know philanthropists within your network um I think um that's a really important role that they can play here um, because too too often people reduce Aboriginal affairs to something, you know, too political or something that you don't talk about, you know, at polite dinners, you know, it's it's too political. But it but it's not political. It goes to the heart of who we are as a nation. And there is this silence in the nation about that original dispossession. And we all carry that. Our country carries that. You know, our people carry that. The Australian people carry that. And unless we resolve that, um, we're never going to really chip away at all the very fine, you know, I look at all the very fine projects SVA is engaged with. A lot of it becomes lipstick on a pig if we won't talk about the really fundamental problem here. And um, and so it's it's serious business. It's as serious as anything this nation has ever faced. Megan, I, I love some of the language that you've just been using there about invitation, peace, bridge building, uh, translation, generosity. It feels like something that truly can be about nation building and coming together and something really collaborative and collective uh, at the same time. Megan, there are people in our audience and certainly everyone in the SVA team who also wants to see great change happen. Uh, if there was just one thing that you haven't shared yet that you'd like for our audience members to hear or to do, what would it be? It's a good question. There's a couple There's a couple of things you go, if there's one thing, and I'm like, yeah, well, here's 10. Um, look, um, signing up to the Uluru Dialogue on the website would be great on the ulurustatement.org website. So a lot of the information and the work we do is driven from the dialogues. So we've maintained the dialogue structure and it has all the key leaders still participating, plus all the other mob that came on board. 
and many non-Indigenous Australians, though, by the way, a huge number who, who, who ring in on the Friday night Zooms. Um, and so it's, it's still, we still see it as deeply connected to our cultural authority. So when you um, sign up to the UllariStatement.org, just, just, just know that you're getting information straight from our people every Friday night, you know, what, what do we want to tell Australians? It's a direct dialogue to Australians from us. So there's that is a really practical thing to do, I think. Um, there's a process coming up now that will start in December that requires Australians to engage with the model of a voice to parliament. And what we're going to ask people to do is, is to make a submission. Now, some of my colleagues are going to do kind of get up style websites where, you know, you put in information and it, populates a form for you and it generates a submission to the committee but we we're going to take a different approach we really want Australians to to write a message from from their heart about why an enshrined voice is important and why the government needs to to do that um, and we'll provide more information via that e that website that I just spoke about about people signing up so you can hear what what it is that the mob the dialogues want but um People just taking the time to meaningfully contribute to that, I think, is more important than a kind of pro forma submission. And I know people are busy, um, but but this is just one really pragmatic step that we ask people to take because it's this will swing this this will swing it. You know whether Australians engage and say to Morrison, we want we want the referendum, please. Um, the, these submissions will make a huge deal about that or to that. Um, so that, 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 Susie, that, and then the traditional writing to your member, like we're sending people to to their local electorate offices to talk to their local member. Um, that actually has had a huge impact on Uluru, massive impact. Because when politicians come back from their break, they, they often that's what they talk about. What was the sentiment in the, in the office? What are, what are the, the electorate talking to you about? Um, mm. And I, everybody is so empowered and has agency as an individual Australian and voter to do that. So we would, we really urge people to do that as well. Megan, thank you so very much for joining me today and sharing your incredible wisdom. It's very clear that you have thought, as you said, very deeply about this and that your network of incredible leaders and thinkers and doers have been thinking deeply about this. I hope that our audience is now more informed and more curious and will go and look up ullarustatement.org and engage thoughtfully in what this means, really consider it and hopefully be compelled to act and to be part of working towards an Australia where all people and communities thrive. Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA Quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash. Mm -hmm.